This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this case. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Wigs. Uh, it's, we're back with another episode and we have got a lot to talk about. It's been quite a fascinating week, despite the fact you haven't heard from us in a month. And as always, I'm joined by the fantastic uh, barristers that are just the greatest. You've heard my intros in the past, Mr. Stephen Lawrence, uh, who has a side gig. Hello, Mr. Stephen Lawrence. Hey, Jim. Felicity Graham. Good to be with you, Jim. Good to have you back, and Emmanuel Kirksherian. Oh, it's so good to see you guys. How come you didn't say Deputy Mayor of Dubbo? Like because you know I've said that you've got a side gig. Oh, sorry, that was a reference to that. Yeah, okay. I just figured you were over it, so I didn't want to bring it up. <laughs> the Deputy Mayor of Dubbo, ladies and gentlemen. It's this always got to get a mention. It has sorry. to. It has to. It's, uh, it's in the contract. So, it's been a, uh, you know, since the weeks were last in the podcast charts... Uh, it's been a crazy week. There have been protests uh, over this weekend. Uh, we're recording uh, as of early June around the country, and including in Sydney, um, around the Black Lives Matter, uh, the Black Lives Matters issue, and in particular the issue around the Aboriginal deaths in custody. And in this episode, we're going to talk about uh, the context around the um, the protests, and we're going to talk about the court appearances in which the Whigs themselves appeared in. Uh, in the first instance and the appeal. So we're going to kick off with the context around the Black Lives Matter movement and in particular its context in Australia. So Felicity Graham, can you please fill us in? Jim, the Black Lives Matter movement in Australia exists against a backdrop of the mass incarceration of Indigenous Australians. That is a national disgrace and the brutality of the criminal justice system which disproportionately affects Indigenous Australians. Just to take a bit of a historical uh, view on it, between 1987 and 1991, a light was shone on the issue of black deaths in custody when the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody inquired into 99 Aboriginal deaths in custody in police cells and prisons across the country. The final report made over 300 recommendations focusing on policing, incarceration specifically deaths in custody and the criminal justice system generally. One of the central findings of the Royal Commission, of Ricky Dick, was that Aboriginal people die in custody at a totally unacceptable rate, Mm -hmm. but that this occurs not because Aboriginal people in custody are more likely to die than others in custody, but because the Aboriginal population is grossly overrepresented in custody. Too many Aboriginal people are in custody too often. Interestingly, Australian jails and um, police data relating to arrests do not record... Uh, race-based statistics um, for the most part apart from Aboriginal um, or non-Aboriginal status. So it's impossible to, for example, compare Mm. white deaths and non-white death rates in custody. And probably the majority of the jail population would be non-white, I would have thought, or non-Anglo-Saxon anyway, Anglo-Irish or whatever. Like the majority would be 
I would have thought, consisting of, of Aboriginal people, uh, Islander people, Middle Eastern people, Asian people. I would have thought that would probably form a majority of inmates. Mm, it would be interesting to mm. search for some data on that. Mm. It certainly looks that way, like when you're visiting prisons. Mm. Mm. When it comes to the Indigenous population in prison, in the 30 years since Ricky Dick, that um, population has doubled, um, although the mortality rate for Aboriginal people in custody has actually reduced. Mm -hmm. So there's a recent Institute of Criminology report that found um, that there was a reduction in the death rate of Indigenous prisoners largely due to a reduction during 1999 to 2006, which coincided with a decrease in the hanging death rate of Indigenous prisoners. Mm. And I think there's been a lot of work done around keeping um, particularly prisons and jails um, safe in terms of... um, Self-harm. Yeah. Yeah. And you Um, see that in the leper regs uh, here, don't you? Like the regulations made under the... Law Enforcement Powers and Responsibilities Act, mm, which I think is very it's also prescriptive as to like conditions of custody, inspection of jail, <coughs> provision of medical assistance, uh, the custody notification scheme for Aboriginal people. Mm, I think it's also a lot to do with um, the way jails are built and making sure that there aren't hanging points and things like that. Right. Um, but there have cells, yeah. ampl- in police cells. Yeah, there've been um, over four hundred Indigenous deaths in police or prison custody since those Royal Commission findings back in nineteen ninety one. Amy Maguire, a Darrambul and South Sea Islander journalist, wrote in the Saturday paper recently an article: "There cannot be four hundred and thirty two victims and no perpetrators." I would really commend her article to our listeners, and she points to the brutality evident in the statistics that show black jailing rates in parts of Australia are the highest in the world and where Aboriginal people continue to die on the floor of watch houses, in the back of paddy wagons and in handcuffs locked to hospital beds while denied their liberty away from their families and children and in many cases away from their country. And one of the things that's really... I think important to note in this context is that even though it's been over 30 years or almost 30 years since um, Ricky Dick recommendations were uh, made, only 55% of the recommendations designed to keep people out of jail by using jail as a last resort have been implemented. Mm -hmm. And that's the harder stuff, isn't it, realistically? And so governments across the country have really failed to implement those Um, recommendations and other recommendations that were key to the uh, report like decriminalising public drunkenness, um, that police shouldn't arrest people for minor offences like offensive language. These recommendations still remain outstanding across the country in many places. Yeah. So that's the some of the background to um, this movement in Australia and um, and why is it amplified? Is it is it the US is what amplified it out down here? Is it given a given reason to voice really? Well, the the protest or, or rally that occurred in Sydney um, over this weekend was initially um, framed as a vigil to remember the deaths of George Floyd uh-huh. in Minneapolis. Yeah. And David Dungay Jr., who died in Long Bay Jail in 2015. Okay. 
and people might have seen the video footage um, of uh, George Floyd's last moments and they might have also seen video footage of David Dungay's last moments. But what um, is clear um, if you watch that footage or, or read reports about it is that both men kept saying I can't breathe um, as they were being restrained um, in George Floyd's case by a police officer in David Dungay's case by a number of prison guards and so there definitely is that um, moment in time where what is happening in the United States um, has really resonated for people here, I think. Yeah. Um, but as I think Manny will go into some more detail, that vigil was initially planned as a 50-person event outside mm. the Department of Corrective Services near Central Station in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, and has obviously um, taken on a whole lot more momentum since um, the uh, protest organiser or the... Um, the organiser of that event initially yeah. okay. sort of framed it. So well, let's get into it. So um, a vigil was organised um, for the 5th of June and uh, from what I know, and it's very little, enough notice was given, but uh, let's stand to be corrected. Emmanuel Kirkusharian? So, Jim, on the 29th of May 2020, Raul Bassi provided a notice of intention to undertake a public assembly, being the vigil, um, on the 6th of June 2020. And, and the, the, the number of days between the 29th of May and 6th of June is important because it's more than a week. Um, that notice, as, as Felicity said, was, I think, for about 50 people or something like that. It was going to be a small vigil. By the 3rd of June, uh, Mr Bassey contacted the police to say, look, it's getting big um, and we should have a chat about our options. On the 4th of June... They, a meeting occurred with the police uh, and Mr Bassey uh, and at that meeting he described a sort of larger vigil that was going to take place starting at Town Hall, walking down towards Belmore Park and holding a vigil in Belmore Park. Um, he gave that explanation, he spoke about, he put into place some social distancing measures and so on that he intended to put into place and um, Effectively, what happened was the police on the 4th of June emailed Mr Bassey to say OK. And the email didn't say OK. What it did was attach to it a amended notice of intention that reflected the understanding that, in effect, he, that is Mr Bassey and the police, had come to about how this thing would run. And in that notice, they basically said... Um, If you're okay with it, let us know and bring us a signed copy on Saturday. Wow. Right? Okay. So... Legit. Now, as listeners may be aware, that evening and the following morning, the pressure, the political pressure was ratcheted up. Yes. There were various statements, including statements made of the Premier's quite reasonable approach to protests. Um, Well, at least what was understood to be her quite reasonable approach to protests and so on, the pressure was ratcheted up and uh, sometime at about 10am about on 5 June no doubt in light of that pressure So that's the day before the protest? That's the maybe? day before the protest okay. right, six, days, 6 or 7 days after they've been notified uh, the police uh, 
called Mr Bassey and said, look, we're thinking about taking this to the Supreme Court. Uh, and sure enough, they did. Okay. Now, that phone call was about 10.04 and somewhere at around... Earlier that week, I had given a webinar with Peter O'Brien for the Redfern and the Redfern Legal Centre yeah. about protests and COVID laws and so on. And so sometime... Did, I don't know, did you have any knowledge that this was going to take place on the weekend? I, I had no idea this was coming. Okay. Um, but sometime between 10 and 11.30, I did a phone call from Peter O'Brien saying, hey, Manny, um, are you available <laughs> to appear? And I was at my father's house. I just got to my father's house to have a cup of tea, and, and sure enough, I was available, and so I said yes, uh, and got into chambers by about midday mm. and got into it. Yeah. Um, so at this stage, we had no originating process. There was no summons. I had no evidence. In fact, I had absolutely no evidence at all. All I knew was what I'd read in the media reports. Right. Um, and I dragooned, and dragoon's not fair actually to him because he was very willing to help me out, Rory Pettit, a reader in my chambers, to give me a little bit of advice on whether or not the implied right of political communications had a role to play. Um, so he was doing that for me, and I was trying to get my head around what these provisions say. Okay. Is that a federal... Act for political communication. So, so the implied right to political communications is a constitutional principle yeah. that has been found by the High Court. And look, without getting into the legalities of it, you might say that you're allowed to stop political communications yeah. um, if what you're doing is proportionate to what's happening, mm-hmm. right? So <clears throat> I think that's the, the easiest way to do it, right? So you can't say nobody can ever do political advertising for any reason whatsoever, mm-hmm. but you might make some inroads into that if you can justify it. Mm-hmm. Especially mm-hmm. if it ultimately serves the purpose of de- the democratic system that we have, right? Mm-hmm. So allowing others to speak or, um, you know, ensuring that it doesn't involve some incitement to violence or something like that, the yeah. speech. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, right. So I get my head around as much as one can in that amount of time all of the law concerning the Summary Offences Act and I suppose this is a reasonable point to kind of note that there is a regime concerning protests and the law legality of protests. Now, there's nothing stopping anyone from protesting at any time, right? So you can't ban a protest. You can't ban a protest. But... When you think about a protest, what you think about is a bunch of people walking down a street, say, blocking off that street, and so on. Right. And what the Summary Offences Act provides is that you can go to the police commissioner, and if you go seven days before, there's certain things that flow from that, and Mm -hmm. say to the police commissioner, look, here's my formal notice. These are the rough details about how I'm going to run my protest. Mm -hmm. Can I have permission? Can I work with you to develop a way for this protest to go ahead and minimise the disruption in effect to the community. But obviously there's going to be some disruption. We're going to block roads. We're going to do these things. Uh Mr Bassey did that. Yes. And he was told in an email that this was okay. Yes. And then the next day they turn up and they say, we're opposing it. Right. Okay. So we turn up in front of Justice Fagan in the Supreme Court around about 3.30, and at this stage I haven't seen any evidence at all. I've seen one of the notices, I've seen the originating summons by the police, but 
the I didn't get the evidence until about five minutes after the hearing had begun in front of Justice Fagan. So they didn't even have the documents important and seen it. Um, and the summons said one that they it said various things, but effectively made two key points. One, they wanted a declaration sorry, not a declaration. They wanted an order in effect prohibiting the protest or the vigil. Uh, under the Summary Offences Act. And the effect of that is not to prohibit it, but in effect to make sure that all of those other laws concerning being on roads and so on and the public health orders continue to apply. Uh-huh. Okay, So they, they asked the Supreme Court for that order. Um, they also asked, and this was fairly quickly abandoned, for, in effect, a declaration that the notice that was filed was invalid. I, I looked at this and I had the notice and that was the only evidence I had and I'm looking at the notice going, how the hell is this thing invalid? It right. all the statutory boxes. Yeah. Was there an issue about whether it had been signed yeah, or not? That's, yeah, and so, so just, the... Justice Fagan, uh, you know, well, what's this about? And They ultimately didn't press that application, no, no. is that right? Well, so they get up and they, they, they pushed it and, and Justice Fagan pushed back and basically said, look, isn't there this thing called the Electronic Transactions Act? It's got his name on it, yeah. basically says mm. if you send an email and it's mm. obviously what you intend... Um, that's that, and mm. they accepted that and moved on. But I thought in such a nineteenth-century argument. I mean, <laughs> in circumstances where they'd been working with this guy, they knew what this was about. To take, to even contemplate mm. taking that point was just utterly disingenuous. Mm. Mm. Anyway, they abandoned that point, and Justice Fagan took the view that the amended notice, and it's important to note, the police amended the notice and sent it to Mr. Bassey. So they amended his notice? They amended his notice to indicate effectively what they'd agreed to and sent it to him and said, look, if you're OK with this, let us know and bring us a signed copy. And that's because he had said to the police in the meeting that he was too busy to redraft it, basically, yes. hadn't he? He, he and said... And the cops said, oh, well, we'll do it for you then, which yeah. is very kind of them. Wow. They said, oh, look... Raul, we need to formalise this. You need to send us the updated form. And he said, oh, I've got to go to work. I'm too busy. I can't do it. Can Michelle do it? Mm. Who was one of the sergeants um, on the case. And they said, yeah, OK. okay. And right. so she then did that and okay. sent this modified version of the notice, which changed the 50-person vigil at Corrective Services to a 5,000 approximate um, what were they basing that approximation on? I think they were basing that on the fact that there was a Facebook event which um, several thousand people had indicated that they were planning to attend this event. And mm-hmm. that was, it seemed, what prompted Mr Bassey to approach the police in the days leading up right. to the event and say, look, I think we need to change the location and I think we, yeah. we should have a procession down to Belmore Park. Yeah. Um, through the CBD rather than just remain at one location because there's going to be a lot more people. Yeah, something a bit more appropriate for the amount that are prospectively going to show up to this event. Yeah, and look, I I think up until that point and up until recent times, and I get this from talking to various protest organisers, and Mr Bassey is a very experienced protest organiser, the police generally had been working with protesters Mm. to try and make these things work well, reasonably, they don't safely. want mass arrests either. No, they don't. They don't want social unrest. The police are generally reasonable people. So, you know. So anyway, that's abandoned. I think 
because of political pressure, and we turn up in front of the Supreme Court. They run this ridiculous point for half a minute about the document not being signed. Right. And then Justice Fagan took the view that because the amended notice was in existence, the previous notice was in effect superseded. And it was now, because we were within the seven-day period, yeah. uh, what we had to do was take... What, it was no longer incumbent on the commissioner to apply, but rather the defendant had to, in effect, apply for the vigil to be permitted. So yeah. A, a flick in the onus and a change in the nature of the order. And that's because there's a specific provision that says if you don't serve within seven days, yeah. then you have to go to the Supreme Court and get authorisation. Is that right? That's yeah. right. And whilst I'm having this discussion with Justice Fagan, I'm, I'm looking at this piece of my practice, you know, practice being the, the annotated act in a, in a format... Um, and a page had ripped out and I was looking at this and I noticed that in fact one of the reasons, one of the ways that you could have a protest permitted is if the police commissioner had communicated to you that he didn't oppose it. And so I said, so Justice Fagan was saying, look, if you want this to go ahead, you need to, you need to move the court in effect for an order that it go ahead. And I said to Justice Fagan, well, there's an alternative proposition, which is we don't do anything, and the question of whether or not the approval has been granted can be determined by a court later, and it's something that I need to take instructions about. And so I went out and given some time to take instructions. Um, and interestingly, at this point, the police commissioner's representative stood up and said, well, where's this? Where's the evidence that the police commissioner ever said yes and called for the document? And I kind of... Lent over to him after the judge went off the bench. I'm like, mate, it's like page 25 of the extras. Just have a look at this. In your own affidavit. <laughs> In your own affidavit. Which, to his, I mean, he'd seen it the same time right, I had, five right, minutes right. after it started. Sure. Uh, but this caused some consternation. But I went out and, and look, to, to the organisers' great credit, they decided that they would seek a declaration that the protest had been, in effect, authorised that it was right. already that an authorised all, public assembly. That's right. It was all. So there was two things. One is that it required authorisation, which was an argument that was ultimately lost in front of Justice Fagan. But the other argument, which was also lost in front of Justice Fagan, was they'd already said okay. Mm. And the effect of them having already said okay was that was the ball game, unless they made an application to, in effect, take it back. Mm -hmm. to reverse the situation. And their application money was premised on the fact that it was already an authorised public assembly because they brought that application to, in effect, reverse that situation and have it prohibited. Yeah, that's right. Mm. So their starting point was quite reasonable. Mm. And I don't know why, but they, in effect, embraced this other view, which was obviously wrong. So did Justice Um, Fagan express that view in argument, then causing them to abandon their application well, and shift the premise of it? Was that <coughs> Justice well, Fagan expressed his view that the notice was, in effect, out of time yeah. within the seven-day period, and then said to me, therefore, you will have to bring an application. And then mm. the commissioner flipped his position. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. the commissioner didn't speak against that. Yeah. Mm. And so, I, I mean, one of the things they could have done was just said, well, okay... You say we're out of time. We say, we say we've been given authorisation. 
let's go and do the protest and the courts can sort it out later. But they were very responsible, as they'd been through the whole thing, and so we will try and get a declaration that, in fact, the police commissioner has told us this can happen. Wow, okay. Right? And so we ran that in front of Justice Fagan. I ran it in front of Justice Fagan. And, I mean, I don't want to go into all of the details of of what happened. It was a a three-and-a-half or four-hour argument that began at 3.30, involving evidence from, from Dr... Chant, who's the chief medical officer, who, who said that the risk would increase but couldn't really put a number on how much it would increase or what, in fact, the risk was. So did you ask her about the NRL? I did ask her. Yeah, what so, did you ask her about so, the NRL? So in the course of, in the course of this hearing, um, whilst Dr Chant's in evidence, Peter O'Brien flicks me his mobile phone and on it is this article from breaking The Guardian, <laughs> breaking news, they've just announced people can go to the NRL. Mm. Uh, and the upshot of her evidence... Where thousands and thousands of people go. Uh, I mean, who knows? I, I mean, you can imagine I'm going off three lines that I've read in 30 seconds <laughs> on a mobile phone and cross-examining, <laughs> cross-examining the chief medical officer, you know. That's awesome. <laughs> um, which I guess is the sort of stuff you learn learn coming out of the Western Aboriginal Legal Service. But... Um, she was her, probably scared, having just come out of the Walker inquiry. Her, <laughs> her evidence was that she hadn't given any advice about people attending the NRL. Mm. So I don't know where this announcement came from, mm. but it came without her advice. It's astonishing. Yeah. Now I, I don't actually, and I mean, she seemed to be saying at one point that she'd given advice about people going to boxes, but Justice Fagan squarely put it to her, and her answer was that she hadn't given advice. Okay. So right. I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. And we know, for example, today, the Deputy Premier came out and said something like, with all due respect to Dr Chant, there's no science behind this. It's all... Ju- I can't remember all the words. Were. It's all, it's all, no, it's yeah. like it was worse than judgment calls. Like, anyway, we'll turn up the quote. But sure. It, that was... I mean, that's the Deputy Premier who one presumes is privy to, to all of this stuff. So anyway, I went on in front of Justice Fagan, um, who, who, who suggested that this was a right deferred, that one could defer the right to protest, something that I pushed back against. And, and Good. You know, kind of... I, I don't think the right to protest can be deferred, particularly not in the context of this, which was a global protest that was going on. But It's even all about general, timing, politics. Yeah, the speech is all about timing, yeah, isn't it? That's right. And, and even crucially generally about speaking, timing. It's not, in my view, for the Supreme Court to say, don't worry about it, you can do it later mm. when we're talking about fundamental rights. I don't think that's a reasonable position. Um, and in any event, his honour ruled against me, ruled against the organisers in relation to the balancing test um, between the rights of people to protest and, in effect, the safety of the community, if we can put it that way. Uh which ruling, I mean, it's a ruling on the evidence, mm. fine. Um, I, I certainly took a different view, but he's on as the judge, and I, I respect that decision in that regard. Mm-hmm. But what his honour also did was find that that email, which is produced in the Court of Appeal judgment, wasn't what I said it was, which was that, in effect, they authorised it. Mm. As self-evidently that. And yeah. I think the Court of... We'll, we'll come to what the Court of Appeal yeah. said in due course, but... Um, so that declaration was... So the Summary Offences Act decision has what's called a privative clause in it, although it's not much of a privative clause. It's a clause that prevents you from appealing that decision. Okay. But the declaration has no 
prohibition on appeals. So, in effect, there was some difficulty, perhaps perhaps it was Is your mattress making noises it never used to? Or is it sagging, causing you to... Then it's time to get a new one. Get the best sleep at the best value with a Nectar mattress. Prices start at just $499, and you get $399 in accessories thrown in, a 365-night home trial, and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. Possible to appeal his decision in yeah. relation to that. I don't know. Okay. But the declaration was certainly appellable. Um, the refusal to the, declare. The refusal, mm. yeah, the, mm. the refusal to declare that what, in effect, that email was amounted to was permission. Yeah. Was itself appellable. Uh, and in the course of giving his ruling, His Honour dismissed the application by the Commissioner to have the protest not authorised. And that's crucial because that, as I said, is a decision that is governed by the Summary Offences Act and may not have been appellable at all. <laughs> right. Okay. So he dismissed that, that application, dismissed our application, and what and and did not make the declaration sought, but the declaration sought remained appellable. So I went home and couldn't sleep. Um, so you, having... you, you know straight away? Did you go... Did you walk out of that courtroom going, well, he's made a clear error here? Look, did you have? Did it have to come to you in a urine? I, I walked out of that courtroom and went home. Eventually, um, couldn't sleep. Was having breakfast um, with my partner when I got a call from my fellow weeks. Several calls that I missed because <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't looking at my mobile phone. He's always call screen. Uh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I was bloody weeks again. Um, yeah. All right. Yeah, fascinating story, Manny. Um, and look, it was a, an incredible 24, 24, 48 hours. So, set the scene for us, Felicity and Stephen. Um, the first instance just occurred. You two happened to be in Dubbo, which I, I know the deputy mayor, by the way. Uh, <laughs> yeah, oh. um, and and you've woken up. It's Saturday morning. Take it away. What happens? Yeah, so I was in Dubbo um, on uh, the Friday and I was lucky to have Felicity coming to spend the weekend with me. Yeah, uh, the long, long weekend, weekend with me. Long weekend. And we, I had watched, I'd caught the tail end of the matter in the Supreme Court. Yeah. Um, so I'd been aware of it. Uh, when Flick arrived on the Friday, was, you, I think you arrived quite late, didn't you? Yeah, Flick? I did. It's quite interesting. So, well, I, I found it quite sort of interesting and funny, the sort of quirks of the different events that happened over that sort of 24-hour period. But I was a, just about to get in the car and drive from Sydney to Dubbo on Friday afternoon when I got this call saying, there's this protest case happening in the Supreme Court. Can you urgently come into it? Mm. And I said, oh, look, Yes, but I'm pretty sure a few hours ago it was already sorted out for Manny Kirkasherian and Pete O'Brien to act in the case. So I'm sure there's been a sort of flurry of phone calls from the protesters and everything. It's an urgent thing to try and make sure that there's representation and everything. But why don't you just call me back and find out? And they called me back and said, yeah, no, it's all sorted. Yep, yep. So then I got in the car Feel and yep. drove um, out to Dubbo. I got there about, I don't know, 10 o'clock at night, yeah, something it's about like 10 that. 30, I think. Quite late. Yeah. Uh, and then we were just chatting about other things mm. mostly. I had been trying to get um, 
the radio on the way out to Dubbo to try and find out what's happening sure. with this case because yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I was quite interested in the result. So just after judgment came in, what that would have been about eight o'clock at night or something, yeah, Manny, uh, I heard the kind of breaking news on the ABC radio about what the result was. Mm. Um, but I hadn't watched the live feed or listened mm. to it or anything, which you had caught part yeah, of. Yeah, I'd caught Steve. the tail end of it, and I've been told since that there were 1,800 people listening to it, wow. which is quite interesting. Mm. Including some people who failed to put themselves on mute mm. <laughs> yes. at various points. And during the period of the judge adjourning, the lawyers didn't put themselves on mute in the courtroom, and there was lots of funny discussions, which I couldn't sort of understand all of them, but well, we'll there was discussions about them. movies and mothers-in-laws and the lights all sorts went of funny there things. There was lighting in the courtroom, <laughs> somebody may have said. Anyway, so then uh, Flick and I went to bed and woke up early on Saturday morning, not together, of course, and... Um, Irrelevant. We, so we can edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> I think that stays. I think that stays. <laughs> we I think that stays. Then we started talking about the case in the morning and we rang up um, Manny first, I think. Okay, why? Just to find out okay. Ross and yeah, just sort of talk happened. about it yeah, and yeah. find out what was happening with yeah. it. And, and Manny didn't answer, so then we called Pete. Then we called Pete and... Then we had a series of phone calls with Manny, with Pete. That's Peter O'Brien, the solicitor, yeah, the solicitor who ran the case. They came to him. So, Ro- Mr. Bassey came to Peter first, right? Yeah, so Peter yeah. was the solicitor yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, cool. the Supreme Court. Who did a fantastic job. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So then uh, the decision was ultimately made to lodge the appeal. Uh, I think you, Manny, were driving around somewhere, uh, so Manny wasn't available. Yeah. And then Flick and I started the work of drafting the summons. We sent it through to Manny. And basically, we ran the point uh, that Manny had argued in the Supreme Court, which was this pretty clear point in terms of there had been an application lodged at least a week out. Um, Therefore, in the absence of an order in favour of the police not authorising the protest, it was by operation of the Act and authorised public assembly. But you you picked up on that straight away. Well, I picked up on it. Right. Um, Once you you realised you had a page missing in your practice. Once I was looking at the practice and then... Once you know, I, I was flicking through the affidavit was I don't know an inch thick. Yeah, and flicking through, I just happened to come across this email. Yeah, and I read it. Yeah. But I mean, you smoking gun. I, I picked it up, um, but you know. Yeah, and mm. so you, so he tells you, and you guys go, well, that's the appeal. Yeah, and so yeah. the key provision is, I think, this provision, section twenty four of the Summary Offences Act, which is basically the provision that creates the immunity from prosecution in certain circumstances. Yeah. And so it says, if an authorised public assembly is held substantially in accordance with the particulars furnished in the notice that's originally given, or if those particulars are amended by agreement between the Commissioner of Police and the organiser, then a person is not, by reason of anything done or omitted to be done, um, for the purpose only of participating in that public assembly, guilty of any offence relating to participating in an unlawful assembly or obstruction of any person, vehicle, vessel yeah. in a public place. Yeah, okay. And so this email exchange and also the meeting that the police had had with Mr Bassey where they'd all agreed, yes, it's going to now be a 5,000-person procession through the city, um, no problem, etc. that was effectively 
amended particulars by agreement uh-huh. between the commissioner and <clears throat> the organiser of the public assembly. And so... Um, yeah. So, it's Saturday morning. You guys are having breakfast. You discover this. You and Manny and Stephen, uh, Felicity, you all discover this. You've got an appeal. But it's Saturday morning, all right? Time's running out. You're in Dubbo. This is happening in the Supreme Court. How do you, uh, how do you launch an urgent appeal on a Saturday to an injunction? Yeah, so what practically happened was we all drafted the summons and we decided to appeal under Section 101 of the Supreme Court Act against the refusal to make the declaration. Ah, okay. And Manny talked before about the privative clause and we had been discussing that and I don't think it was the primary reason why we didn't appeal the other order, but we just formed the view that essentially the declaration appeal would be sufficient. Mm -hmm. Um, The solicitor then got in contact with the registrar of the court and the court security, and there was a bit of sort of to and fro in terms of getting the court together, but ultimately the Court of Appeal convened in person at the Supreme Court building. In person? Yep, in Mm. person. Uh, Justices uh, Bell of Appeal, Bell... Leeming um, and the Chief Justice Bathurst, and we got notified of a hearing time of one forty-five. Wow! And it was on. so we had probably in between drafting the summons and getting that notification, we had about an hour or so to and prepare. You're in your pajamas at this. Right? We were actually, and yeah. at one we point, we were in our pajamas. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> did you go? Did you go robes over the PJs and then wig on? You only top? have to wear a bar jacket um, and a jabbo when you're appearing on the AVL oh. because we were able to appear on AVL, obviously. This is Jim here cutting into the episode just briefly. The AVL is the acronym for the audiovisual link that the courts have been set up for as a result of the coronavirus pandemic and now back to the show. You'll know the absence of pants. Yeah. <laughs> I think I was wearing a... A aqua green pair of shorts on the bottom half, and then my jabo, not prison green, no, no, nice sort of aqua green. Uh, Felicity didn't have her robe, so she wore my robe sort of wrapped around herself. I wore wore your second jabot, your spare jabot, Mm. and I pinned your robe so that it sort of looked like a bar jacket. (laughs) And this is the famous photo that you guys, the selfie that you took. This is what you were... (laughs) Yeah. In between Netflix shows and and appeals, urgent appeals. It Mm. was a really kind of fascinating... I guess, morning and and afternoon in terms of the logistics of it. Because Pete O'Brien was also um, driving, I think, down the south coast for the weekend. So he wasn't in his Sydney office. But he had two solicitors, Sydney Sarang and Elliot Rowe, who um, were in Sydney. And I think they were um, planning to be available to people at the protest in case they needed legal advice. Because at that point... It had been an unauthorised um, event. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And people were, had, there was much trepidation yes. about what might happen. Um, and so they were in, in the Sydney office uh, and able to kind of contact the security guard yep. at the Supreme Court, email the registrar, the summons, and the paperwork and so on. And Sydney, it was one of the other things that sort of, um, arose out of the urgency of the cases. We didn't actually have a judgment um, from mm. Justice Fagan's decision. Oh, okay. But Sydney had made really careful typed notes 
basically word for word when Justice Fagan had given his decision the night before. Yep. And so we were able to, with the agreement of the Council for the Commissioner of Police, provide that to Who was highly the Court reasonable, wasn't he? Yeah. He was highly reasonable, yep. I think, in the way that he dealt with us. Yeah, so the Court of Appeal received that as a sort of, I guess, aid yeah. or um, as a as an agreed kind of correct uh, account of what the judgment, the judgment was. Yeah. yeah. And so you guys bring the case, uh, bring the appeal forward, the argument for the appeal, mm. and, and talk us through it. How long mm. did it take? What happens? Yeah, so we found out at about 12.30 that the court was going to be able to convene. Okay. Uh, they set it for one forty-five. The event was scheduled to start at 3 o'clock, but yes. of course thousands of people were already gathering already ahead of time to be there for kickoff. Wow. Um, and I think the court actually came onto the bench at about two o'clock because mm. they had been receiving the paperwork and this agreed version of the judgment, you know, just in those, um, that short time frame ahead of hearing the case. Mm. And it seemed to me that within about the first kind of few minutes of Steve addressing the court about the different provisions of the Summary Offences Act, that they were pretty onto the issues. I think I started talking about Section 24. Yeah. That was the beginning of the submission. And I said, oh, Section 24 is the provision that gives the immunity. And one of the justices, I can't remember who, said, and it also provides that an application can be amended in respect of its particulars, doesn't it, Mr Lawrence? <laughs> and I had a feeling at that point that they obviously understood the argument that we were putting and that it wasn't necessarily falling on unfavourable ears. Mm. Excellent. Yeah. And we submitted for not that long, maybe 10 minutes or so. It was pretty... Maybe 15. Maybe 15. It was a fairly straightforward point. I took them to the affidavits, took them through why we said that there had been a valid application within seven days mm. and there being no other contrary order in place. It was therefore by law and authorised public assembly. Mm. They were keen to sort of do the hearing quickly and I started off by explaining to them that uh, there was going to be an event at Town Hall at mm. three o'clock and they said, you can take it, we've read the materials, Mr Lawrence. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Um, Mr Spitalis, who appeared for the police, then submitted, and he focused his argument initially on the privative clause, and I think what he was saying was that even appealing a declaration in respect of the operation of the Act is to call into question the decision. And it's an interesting issue because obviously privative clauses have over the years been uh, eroded more and more by the courts in terms of their capacity to oust appellate jurisdiction and the judges didn't seem very interested in the privative clause at no. all. No, and one of the judges, I think it might have been Justice Leeming, referred to how the privative clause doesn't include purported decisions. Yeah, that's right. And so there's this line of authority that suggests that if a decision is... Uh, marred by error, then it's still going to be amenable to appeal mm. um, because it's not really a decision, it's a purported decision. So, okay. so we got the feeling that our appeal would succeed and we started to think about uh, the logistics of communicating that to people. And what time is this? This is, um, we got the decision at 2.45 or 2.46, yeah. And I think they adjourned at about... 
I don't know, 2.39 or 2.40. Uh, they, they only adjourned for about five minutes. Yeah. And they made the declaration that we had sought and then said they would give their decisions later. We, in the meantime, had been lining up emails, text messages, yeah. messages on Facebook, social media posts to make sure that it was immediately communicated. Yeah. Um, and so they deferred the reasons and just said, yeah. here is uh, appeal. Can I can I just come back to in the course of the hearing? I think it became apparent that um, when it became apparent that the court was sort of on side, the police commissioner's representative started to wanted to re-agitate. He did. He did. That was quite interesting. So it became, I think, clear that the judges were of the view that there had been service within seven days, and then obviously, unless there was a contrary order in favour of the Commissioner, it would be an authorised public assembly. So Mr Spitalis at that point said, well, we would seek leave to re-agitate our application. And having thought about that since, I'm not sure the Court of Appeal would have had jurisdiction to do it, but any in any event. Yeah. Uh, but the Chief Justice immediately, <coughs> I think from memory without talking to the other two judges, said, leave refused or no, we wouldn't be doing that. <laughs> And um, in the judgment that ultimately came, they described that as an application brought at the heel of the hunt. Um, so, yeah, we were, I suppose, advantaged by this sort of compressed time frame because it all having come so close to the end in terms of the beginning of the protest, there wasn't time for the commissioner to go and try to invoke the discretion of the court again. Um, so, anyway, we then secured the order of the very second it came down we communicated to a whole lot of people at the protest yeah and i think it was then read out on the loudspeaker by the family of david dungay yeah to the assembled crowd about i think at 251 is what i've read nine um, minutes to midnight wow i'm going to play yeah. the audio right now get your camera here so you breaking news live now from the supreme court the people can march. Yeah. wow what a moment that's great. So who? So you were just yeah. You had everybody lined up to to relay that information to, and then uh, the rest, as we know, is history. The uh, protest took place, and it was peaceful and no arrests. Mm. Twenty thousand plus. Yeah, it looked big to me. I've been yeah. at some big demos at Town Hall, and that looked to me more. But I don't know. That's can, what they're saying. Can I just 20. put in a correction there? I believe there was one arrest. Without yeah, it was after the protest. Yeah, it's central, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. Twenty thousand people, Manny. Yeah, but 20,000 people. But I, look, I give, I mean, you know, we did what we did, but the credit goes to the organisers who really did. They put into place so due diligence. There, yeah. They had, I, I can't remember how much it was, some outrageously large amount of hand sanitizer, Leases. Leases there. Masks available. And they worked with the police the best they could. Yeah. And really what, the, what I argued in the... In, at first instance, and what the Court of Appeal found was that they had been doing that. Mm. Mm. Yeah. It's one thing if the police commissioner wants to say that's not enough and get the Supreme Court to say that's not enough. Right. But you can't say that they didn't try and you can't say that they didn't do the right thing mm. as best they could. Yeah. And isn't it so powerful that so many people <sighs> turned out to express their solidarity and views on this Black Lives Matter um, movement Believing that it was at that point an unauthorized mm. protest yeah. and yeah. taking that risk that they would face the real consequences of that. 
Yeah, I, I had said to Justice Fagan that <clears throat> the more cautious approach, the safer approach, was to actually allow them to come and be on the road because the alternative was the police corralling mm. people and pushing them away and, in effect, causing people to come into contact with each other and not be able to social distance. And yeah. He rejected that argument, but I think I think what happened shows that it was the safer approach. Yeah, I thought they were, it was coming anyway, right? Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. right. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting in his decision how, from what, how I recall, he, he dealt with that by saying, well, I don't think that people will assemble. I think people are more sensible than that. Mm. And... Um, yeah, that seems to have been a rather large assumption, which was not borne out by the events. Yeah, uh, There was a lot of people there, including two of my nieces, mm. who apparently were very happy to hear of the family involvement. <laughs> Excellent. I got Grateful a very cute text uncles. message. Yeah, saving um, them from arrest. Mm. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> I mean, I, I, think, I think we need to sort out the right to protest in the COVID yeah. times. I just don't think... The, the police appear to be taking this blanket prohibition on if there's anything any more than 10 people they're just not going to let it go ahead mm. um, and it's very difficult for a judge to be the deciding body in that right I mean it's, it's a lot of weight for a, for a judge to take on um, and really if the government wants people not to protest or well, they, I don't think they should be able to stop them from protesting but what should happen is there should be a sensible approach taken to protests with the assistance of police and health health authorities from the get-go. Mm. Don't try and stop it. There's people who want to speak to you in the way that they do. Don't it's essential. It. It's essential. Mm. Mm. It's as essential as Parliament. It's an essential it's, service yeah. to democracy. sort out the Summary Offences Act, I think, as well. Like this yeah. bizarre little part four that sits in the Act creating these confusing concepts of what's authorised and what is prohibited in circumstances where you actually can't ban protests. And also this funny part that doesn't actually state what are the relevant criteria mm. that the court has regard to when deciding whether to authorise or prohibit. Like it was passed, I think, in 1988. I assume it was part of the original Summary Offences Act. High time to, I would have thought, for the Law Reform Commission to look at it. I disagree. And put forward a new proposal. I disagree. Yeah. Any guidance on this is only going to be harmful to protests is where I, where I think it lands. Right yeah. now, that's probably right, but I I'm think, imagining yeah. like a golden future where, yes. you know, it's someone else doing it. The place of no place. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, look, we're down to our last 10 minutes because we wanted to do this show in the speed with which the, uh, the events took place. Uh, we're keeping it under an hour. To, uh, an hour. So uh, I want to end it on a fun thing-themed... Uh, uh, themed around the victory. Is that even possible? Well, I can tell you, Jim, that as soon as the orders were pronounced yes. that the protest was declared an authorised public assembly and we had disseminated that news far and wide, Steve and I took a couple of beers from the fridge and went Good up beer. to his roof and uh, enjoyed the victory looking out over... The uh, beautiful streets of Dubbo. Dubbo. Mm. The deputy mayor would be proud. Good for you. Well-deserved <laughs> drinks. Well-deserved. Uh, uh, hats off to you. Mr. Emmanuel Kirkusharian, please tell me that you had some satisfaction over the weekend. Look, I, I, was, I was off hiking um, when, I, when I got the news. And for me, it was just a real 
sense of relief mm, because it seemed, it seemed, I mean, firstly because of the issues and the importance of what was going on, but also because it seemed to me that what I was arguing in terms of that declaration was self-evident and I was pleased to see that others took that view. Good. Yeah. Mm. Excellent. It was a relief. Well done. Well done. And finally, Mr Stephen Lawrence. Yeah, so look, mainly since the decision, which obviously exploded in the media and social media, I've mainly been reading mean tweets about us as a consequence of our involvement in the case. Um, Can you share some of them? I might just share share some of them. If their actions kill one person from COVID-19, they are terrorists. Right. Except uh, that terrorist was spelt without the... They missed one of the R's, I think. Yes. This is Stephen and Flick, by the way. Yeah, I'm, you're not I'm, involved. I'm, no. I was Poor me, no. by the way. Sue them you're all. You're the <laughs> Sue them all. If you get COVID-19 due to protest, start with these barristers. No one is above the law. No, no one. one. No one. We have immunity, don't we, for things that we say? Yeah, I think we do, yeah. Pretty sure we do. Uh, get to the... Um, grubs of the lowest possible oh, yeah, form. Enough. Yeah, but fair enough. I don't think that's related to the um, protest. I think that's just a general L- review on um, uh, Apple Podcasts, I think. Left-wing um, loonies. Get to... Can get, they be sued? No, get to the ones <laughs> incarcerated. What is it? Incarcerated for... Tell us what you... I what resent you the assertion, my these should two be. should be incarcerated for manipulation of the law. Manipulators of the law. Manipulators That's of it. the law. You bastards. Uh, oh, I should be on your website. Manip- manipulators of the law. <laughs> Stephen Lawrence, manipulator of the law. I love the one where we're called donkeys. Have you found yeah, that? Yeah, we were called donkeys. Yeah. Fine animal. You fucking yes. <laughs> More of a compliment. Willful. Great. Handsome. Now we know the names of the donkeys that help cause wave right. two. Yeah. Mm. Fucking hell. I mean, that's that. This is this will be very interesting. Will there be wave two? If not, are they going to drop the restrictions completely? Mm. Yeah. Well, well I mean, not, can you pinpoint? Well, can you? I mean, like I was walking through Westfields on the way over here, and it was chock a block. So, can we pinpoint wave a thousand two? people can assemble in Woolworths? Yeah. Yeah, but but supposedly you can't have a protest of 150 people now. And, Every and, protest will be opposed. And what you're protesting, like what you're thinking about, matters. So if you're thinking about fundamental rights and people dying in custody, you're more likely to get COVID than if you're mm. appreciating someone mm-hmm. playing football. Mm. Right. Yeah. And people gathering at shopping centres are gathering with the common purpose to shop. And they're doing that knowing hundreds of other people will be occupying that space. It's not a very different kind so of gathering to a you know, a public assembly where there's the common purpose to draw attention to some critical well, issue of injustice, knowing that hundreds of others will be there. Schools, thousands of people at schools. The game mm-hmm. of rugby league itself, I mean, it's not hands-off. I mean, how is that justified? Mm. Mm. It's also really interesting to me in light of all of this commentary that we've been observing that the same people that now so violently object to this expression of political will on behalf of the Aboriginal community by the Aboriginal community, many seem to be many and the same uh, as the people who not sort of two weeks ago uh, were were bridling against the COVID nineteen restrictions. Yeah. And why can't I go to the gym? Why can't yeah. I go to the pub? It's just an interesting little crossover. Yeah. Yeah. Look, time will be the answer to all of these conundrums. But uh, I just want to congratulate the Whigs on um, what an amazing story that was. That was the first time I got to hear it in its entirety because I made sure I saved the details for tonight's recording. Um, uh, 
congratulations and hats off to you, Emmanuel Kirkusherian, Felicity Jim. Graham. Thanks, Jim. And Stephen Lawrence. Thanks, Jim. You guys are the greatest, and I am humbled to be in the same room as you. Until next month, fans of the Wigs, we'll see you later. Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. Hey, it's Jim Minns here. For the final time, I just want to remind you all that you can also follow us on Twitter at Wigs Podcast. And it is there that you can send us your questions and we'll answer them on the next episode. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Minns. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Greetings from Ireland. This is a quick taste of what to expect from the Tommy and Hector with Larita Blewett podcast. There's about there's rubbish and old hurlies and everything in the utility toilet and I'd be sandwiched in there and I just go and someone then I can hear someone in the kitchen going, I'm in here by the way. But I remember visiting your house as a teenager and none of your toilets had locks in the door and I'd often be wandering out from the kitchen and hear your mother shouting out <laughs> I'm in here by the way <laughs> just let anybody who's passing know I'm, I'm in here by the way listen to this show on the Acast app or wherever you get your podcasts Acast, 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 Acast recommends, recommends.